Dharma talk time can be made part of the continuation of our practice that we've been doing all day long. Especially gives it especially gives us an opportunity to see how we listen, or as if we can listen to our listening, independent of the content of what's being said. It's another opportunity to see the mind at work, the things that we like and go towards, the things that we push away or space out about. And staying receptive, sometimes ideas can prime the mind to be a little bit more supple, uh, ready to actually experience some of the things that the talks are about. So if the level of attention um, is comparable to what we've been attempting to do all day, we all benefit. Okay. What I'd like to uh, do tonight is say a few words on the fire sermon which was a sermon given by the Buddha. It was one of the earliest. And just a few reflections on it uh, to continue, continue where, in part, where Corrado left off yesterday, particularly building on the idea of contact and feeling that we went into. The fire sermon um, was given by the Buddha to some brothers who were uh, ascetics, ascetics and fire worshippers. This was big in India at certain times. They both feared the fire and also worshipped it, uh, a little bit like what the way we are now with nuclear energy. And they thought that they were arhats, that they were highly enlightened, saintly beings. And the Buddha knew that they weren't. They also didn't think that the Buddha was such hot stuff. So, uh, but he knew they had a tremendous amount of, it, of potential. And so he came into their camp where they were doing all this fire worshipping and they were frightened for him because he even said he was just going to stay out near where they thought all this was going on at night. And they said, we're really afraid. People don't do that. Uh, Why don't you stay with the rest of us? And he said, no, I'm not afraid of that, the fire demon. It's all right. And so he stayed there all night and in the morning he was all right. And they were a little bit puzzled by that or they didn't know what to make of it. And he tries in a number of ways to to show them that they're not uh, arhats. He even did a few miracles, but nothing worked. They were convinced that they were finished. They had finished their job and they had lots of students. And so finally, uh, he came to this sermon and what he was trying to say in this sermon is that the real fire demon is within us. The real fire, uh, the problem with fire is inside. Now, um, What the Buddha was famous for, and supposedly all Buddhas have this ability, is this elegance of presentation, which is they have the ability to understand the temperament and inclinations of the people that they're working with and can immediately adapt teaching so that it is uh, appropriate and better received. And that's why sometimes you read a lot of the... uh, the suttas, you'll see that there are all these different combinations, different uh, concepts are organized in different ways, and you know, five of this and four of that, and sometimes different names for the same things. And uh, defilements or fetters, and here these are roughly what he's calling fire, the fire that burns, are often what we call the uh, defilements or kalesas. And so he he simply used this language because this is who he was dealing with. 
and he thought that using this language would be uh, gain him entree into their minds and so he could be of more help to them. Um, to go all the way to the end, as you probably already know, needless to say, uh, they and all their students get totally converted, eventually attain enlightenment. I'm going to read uh, the sutta. It's quite short. And then uh, reflect on it in just certain ways. It's not a detailed commentary. Those of you who have had some painful experiences with, uh, let's say, commentaries of, of suttas, it's not going to be that. I won't spend you know, an hour on what this word means or where that came from. It starts off a little bit of that. Right, right off the bat, I see that whatever I said was wrong. Anyway, <laughs> He says, thus have I heard, and you probably have seen that. Uh, so many of the suttas start off that way. And thus have I heard. Uh, these are the, this refers, this is Ananda speaking, who is very close to the Buddha and who accompanied the Buddha through everything. And when he wasn't there, in other words, he heard all the Buddha's talks. Moreover, he had an extraordinary memory and had an arrangement with the Buddha that if he wasn't present at a talk, that the Buddha would then give him the talk again. And so when the Buddha died and there was the first council uh, of enlightened beings attempting to reconstruct just what this teaching was, that is, what did the Buddha say? Of course, Ananda was extremely important because of his memory and having been present. So when it says, thus have I heard, also what it's saying is that the speaker, Ananda, is disclaiming any credit for what's happening. Kind of uh, very unmodern. He says, this is not me. What he's saying is, uh, this is what I heard. So it's the Buddha who's saying this. I'm here mainly as, this is a West, I'm a Western Union messenger. Um, of course, other scholars, more uh, modern critical scholarship has also seen the other side of that, and that is uh, you can uh, go the other way and say just about anything, and if you attribute it to the Buddha, well, then what are you going to do with that? So, uh, just, give, just give it the um, credibility. Okay. I don't really know, not having been there to the best of my knowledge. Anyway, he says, thus have I heard. On one occasion, uh, and I know some of you are new to Buddhism, so I'll mention a few things that normally perhaps I wouldn't. On one occasion, the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was living at Gaya together with a thousand bhikkhus or monks. There he addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, everything is burning. All is burning. And what is the all? What is this everything that is burning? Then it goes on to say, the eye is burning. Visible objects or forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. Also, whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact, for its uh, indispensable condition, that too is burning. This is what uh, Karada was referring to yesterday in terms of contact and feeling, Vedana. That is, uh, in the Buddhist psychology, uh, these um, are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which is neither. That is, as we come in contact with the world of objects, there's an immediate reaction of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So the contact is the indispensable condition for the burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving, lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. 
I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with griefs, with despairs. So in this one, he just picked the eye as one sense organ. The eye and everything that the eye comes in contact with. That would be the eye itself. And then visible objects. The coming together, that is a contact between a visible object and the eye and the consciousness around that and feeling. That's what's needed for this to arise. And so he goes thoroughly through the eye, describing the many ways in which the eye is burning. Let's just call it, let's say, eye consciousness is burning. The main thing that he's saying here is that the eye is burning with attachment. And the emphasis is more on the subjective experience. It's not so much the physical eye, although that can be true if the physical eye is deteriorating, aging or dying, or if it's in pain of some kind. Um, what he's concerned with putting forward is that the, the eye is burning because of what are called in Buddhism the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. You may have heard of this once in a while. <laughs> Sometimes called uh, selfishness, uh, aggression, and confusion. There are other words for it, but you get the general idea. Uh, that's what, when we call, say attachment, often it's just short for that because the attachment includes uh, grasping at things and pushing them away. Here it's also included that confusion, in other words, greed, hatred, and delusion or confusion is a form of being on fire. Uh, and this is important to understand in this teaching, if you have either the fire of of craving or the fire of uh, hatred, let's say greed or hatred, according to this psychology, it's absolutely essential that there's also ignorance accompanying it. So ignorance is always there because if there weren't ignorance, this wouldn't happen. Let's say if you were not ignorant, if you were wise, this would not happen. Ignorance is a precondition for being caught, for grasping at things and pushing away at things and not realizing what that's all about. So whenever there is, uh, there is greed and hatred, there is also, there must be as a prerequisite to that, ignorance. The ignorance makes it possible for the, this unskillful action to happen. These are... Uh, again, Carrado talked about kusala, healthy, beneficial consciousness. And these are akusala, which cause suffering. These are unhealthy. They harm us and others. And other forms of burning are mentioned here. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, meeting w- with common sense, what we've all known. Burning with what? Um, with birth. That is, just to be born. Uh, can be viewed as a kind of suffering or fire. Things that go on in the birthing process. The aging, that is the the aging process, constantly afflicting the body, attacking the body. Death, of course, with sorrows, emotional losses, lamentations, pain, physical pain, grief, emotional pain, despair. All, we all know what, what these are. And so, the Buddha is talking about this in terms of the eye and then he, the physical eye or eye consciousness and then he goes on. And it's the very same, so I'm not going to repeat it all the time. Even, I'll just give you a shorthand for it. The ear is burning. So he's moving through the different senses. Not only is the eye on fire, and he's talking to these fire worshippers, telling them, this is the real fire that you should be trying to understand. Not that literal flame out there. The nose, the, the ear is burning. Sounds are burning. The nose is burning, odors are burning. The tongue is burning, flavors are burning. The body is burning, tangibles or tactiles are burning. Then he goes on, it's the very same for the mind. 
uh, and in Buddhist psychology, the mind is the sixth sense because it behaves in a similar way in regard to objects. The objects are the more subtle ones of thoughts and images. The mind is burning. Ideas are burning. Mind consciousness is burning. Mind contact is burning. And also, whatever is felt is pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with mind contact for its indispensable condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of craving, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with grief, with despair. So all six sensory modes are said to be on fire. Now, the Buddha once gave a very short discourse called the All, trying to capture what existence was. And he said, existence is this, these six that I just mentioned. That's what, that's what constitutes what we know of life. There are these objects and we're in contact with them. And this is the composition of what we call reality. And so the Buddha referred to that as the All. I think the talk is just six or seven lines. It's very helpful to see that. This, this comes back to things uh, that we had in one of the discussion groups, realizing such profound things as a thought is a thought. You don't think it's so profound. <laughs> if, you, if we know that a thought is really just a thought, it's, a, it's as they say, a whole new ball game. The problem is we don't think a thought is a thought. We think a thought is whatever the world is that we imagine that, that is spun out from the thought. Okay, the Sutta goes on. Are any of you on fire right now for having been forced to listen to this? In a few minutes, there'll be some suggestions to how to put the fire out, so just be patient. We're not going to leave you here on fire. We want you to be happy so you can finish the evening doing the walking and all that. (laughs) Bhikkhus, when a learned and noble disciple, that's us. We're the descendants of these learned and noble disciples who has heard the truth. Sees thus, he finds non-attachment in the eye. He finds non-attachment in forms, in eye consciousness, in eye contact. And whatever is felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition, in that too he finds non-attachment. He finds non-attachment. This was just on the eye. And so now he's doing it again, only now it's the letting go part. He finds a non-attachment in the mind, in ideas, in mind consciousness, in mind contact. And whatever is felt as pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition. In that too he finds estrangement, excuse me, non-attachment. It's translated here as estrangement, which is not correct. When he finds, it now is coming to the end, when he finds non-attachment, attachment fades out. With the, the fading out of this, he is liberated. He or she is liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that one is liberated. One understands Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What can be done has been done. And we are free from the round of the rounds of of being reborn. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were glad and they approved his words. Now during this utterance, the hearts of those thousands, thousand bhikkhus were liberated from taints through clinging no more. Sounds nice. See, they just listened to the talk and they got liberated. (laughs) That's what that's saying. Thousands of them. 
Now, I don't know if that's true uh, or not true, um, uh, but there there is some basis for the possibility that some of these uh, statements are true. Often the huge numbers are just meant to be uh, to to imply that a, a lot happened. Um, but if you can imagine us being alive at the time of the Buddha and being in the presence of the Buddha and being interested in what the Buddha was teaching and being willing to take that teaching and put it into practice with the presence of such a being, you know, as part of our life. Uh, moreover, those times, uh, it appears, uh, were far more spiritually oriented. I mean, no comparison. So the people may have been far more ripe than we are. And having that powerful uh, assistance of having the Buddha right there may actually have been an enormous help. It, it seems obvious that it, that it would be. However, it's not all over for us. It's not hopeless. Because the teaching, and that's what the Buddha said when he died, he didn't give transmission to anyone. He said that the teaching was his transmission. He left the teaching and said that this is what will free people. And so we have the teaching available to practice and we have facilities and all kinds of things. So it may be a little slower, that's all. Um, Put in ordinary language, what have I been trying to say here for the last 20 minutes? The attachment, rather the burning or the fire, to use that image, and I hope it's helpful because Certainly, at some times, I think it is a very useful word when we're suffering. It does feel as if we're being burned. And we use it in our language a great deal. The, the burning is not in the objects of the world. I mean, the emphasis here is it's not so much in the objects of the world or really in the organs of perception. It's in the attachment. The problem is the when seeing or hearing or smelling and so forth is accompanied by attachment, you have it breaks out into flame, we get scorched. That's what's being suggested. When there's either a grabbing on to something with craving, holding on to it, or if there's a version, a pushing away of something, trying to annihilate it or hate it or get rid of it. And again, remembering that ignorance is part of that. Then we break out into flames. We're on fire. But it's not trying to say, uh, for example, some people who've read this feel it's an incredibly gloomy piece. But... Uh, it isn't. It's, what it's trying to describe is uh, often the image that's used for the Buddha is one of a, a physician, a world healer. And what this is, is a diagnosis of the situation. Moreover, as many of you know, the essence of the Buddha's teaching, which he says many times in a very few words, has to do with suffering and the end of suffering. So it's not about just rolling in, in the flames, but identifying what the problem is, just as a good and kind physician would, just as a good healer would, would understand what is wrong and then providing the proper antidote, the proper medicine, the proper healing. Moreover, it's not saying that every living moment that we're walking around, we're on fire. You know, does it mean that the whole planet's on fire 24 hours a day? No. What's being say, said is that every time our sensory organs come in contact with the objects of the world and there's attachment, there's fire. And so many of us know periods of time, sometimes long stretches of time, when we're more at peace, when we're not grabbing after something or pushing something away, or so perplexed, so confused about what to do that we're on fire that way. So that's what's being suggested. And the Buddha is also, also suggested in that movement towards liberation that as one sees this, as one as a noble, what does that say again? Uh, 
the learned and noble disciple. As the learned and noble disciple uh, sees the truth, and the truth is, is the seeing of this. That, that is, when people grasp onto things, they get burned. And we'll, there'll be a few examples in a moment. Or when we uh, have a lot of aversion, we are getting burned. And as we uh, watch this over and over and over again, it becomes wearying. It can become wearying to see this pattern in ourselves and in others time and time again. Now, how does this come about? How does the non-attachment come about so that we're, we no longer are on fire? The non-attachment comes about through practice, through just what we're doing, through the practice of Vipassana, and that's the meaning of the holy life. The holy life here is the practice that we're doing. And the being done is to successfully bring that to a conclusion or to whatever degree we can, bringing some clarity, some release from the fires that we find ourselves in. Vipassana meditation is uh, the, the practice that helps us uh, move from, to help us extinguish the flames or to prevent the flames from breaking out in the first place in a number of ways. For example, when you begin to see impermanence, that everything that arises passes away, seeing it over and over again, for that to uh, be internalized, be absorbed, the truth of it to become so absorbed that it's, it orients us automatically. That is, we have a deep sense that this is so, not just in the thinking mind. Well, the more the truth of impermanence becomes real to us, the more difficult it is to grasp onto anything as if it were going to be permanent. Now, we grab onto things as if they're going to be permanent and then we get hurt a lot. Well, as the truth of impermanence becomes more our own, as it becomes actualized, not, not merely theoretical, conceptual, more and more intelligence comes in to help us. Wisdom comes in to help us and there's less of an inclination to want to do something that is harmful for us. Similarly with seeing the suffering that comes about through greed, through hatred, through not having a clear mind. Seeing that over and over and over again, it's not only can be wearying, but it can also wake us up. It can help us understand cause and effect. And I'd like to go into that in some detail in a few moments. Seeing what is it that ignites the fire? How does that come about in me, in this moment? How did I do that? How did I catch fire? And then, of course, seeing this whole notion of personal identity from a fresh angle, that there is no solid core known as me, because that causes, perhaps that's the biggest cause of flame, of being on fire, the illusion that there is a core, a fundamental self that's enduring. So that the practice of Vipassana is designed to help us more and more see these truths as practical, actual aspects of reality, not just as uh, philosophic principles, but for them to be as real as whatever you think is real right now, for as, as real as a flame would be. You see, we learn when we touch a literal flame, we know we get burned. But as the flames become more subtle, and that's part of why the Buddha had to do this with these um, three ascetics, we don't seem to learn it as well. So that if we stick our hand in a flame, for most of us, it doesn't take too long before we stop doing that. Whether you call that, that, that's in a sense the core idea of karma. The problem is, and here's what the Buddha is saying here, is that what about the inner flames? the flames that are raging in the mind, particularly. We do that over and over and over again, and we don't seem to learn. And as long as we don't learn, we're going to get burned. And so teachings like this are an attempt to make something 
that in one sense is quite evident, but for some reason the mind is opaque and has a hard time learning it. To help us make that lawfulness our own, just as we know that literal fire is truly harmful, and so we're careful and respectful of it, to understand the more subtle flames have the same, same power. And it's with the increasing practice that this doesn't happen unless we practice. More and more, we're able to understand what this teaching is about and for it to be, in a very natural way, for some of this to start to fade away so there's less occasion for us getting burned. Um, Let me give you another image and how this was used in the Buddhist tradition and then we'll go to some concrete examples which might make it more, um, I hope, more vivid for all of us and some suggestions as to how to incorporate it into the remainder of the retreat. (coughs) Because this is not about these three ascetics who worship the fire, it's about us. Some years later, in the Mahayana tradition, uh, in the uh, a very wonderful teaching called the Lotus Sutra, there's a section there called the Parable of the Burning House. And it's somewhat related to this, and I thought I would share it with you briefly uh, before we come back to our house right here. In this parable, there's a very a venerable, highly competent, highly respected, as we would say, very together person, elder. And his children are playing in this incredibly dilapidated, large house. Now, the description of what's off in this house, you know, the kinds of creatures that are running around and the uh, immense amount of disarray that this house is in, Uh, If I read it, some of you might have to leave the room. It's quite vivid about how awful this place is, this house that's falling apart. It's our planet. At any rate, his children are playing in there, and they're having a wonderful time, as children do. They're just having a lovely time playing with this, that, and the other. And the house catches fire, and he wants to get his children out. Because if he doesn't, they're going to be burned to death. And they're so infatuated with how much fun it is, that is, they love the playing that they're doing, that they don't respond to just being told straight out, the house is on fire. They don't respond to that, and they just keep playing. So then he toys with, well, maybe I sh- I'll just race in there and have a, some kind of big container and try to scoop them all up. But they'll still think that's a game, and... Some of them will squirm out of that and think we're having more fun and, uh, or we'll all get caught in it. I don't know. I'm paraphrasing a little, needless to say. And so he realizes that he can't run in and carry them out himself. Here, there's also an extremely important teaching. What he's saying is that, and this is the, the, the venerable elder is the Buddha, symbolic for the Buddha is that he can't go in and save his own children. They have to save themselves. So it's a very important point about this whole uh, path. It's a path of where we're all trying to help each other as much as we can. We call that the Sangha. But we're trying to help each other to help ourselves. This tremendous emphasis on self-reliance. The Buddha can't save his own children. He can't run in after them. He knows that it won't be fully successful. And there's just this little door. I remember that now. There's just a little door that for, for them to crawl out of. In other words, the escape is very narrow. Needless to say, the coming out of the house, the house that's on fire, is the human condition in a state of ignorance, in a state of attachment. This tiny little door that one has to go through is symbolizing how light you have to be to get through it, to come out the other side and to be safe. Deliverance. I think the Christian counterpart, <laughs> I'm you know, on shaky ground perhaps, but it seems to make sense to me. Have you heard 
It's easier for a camel to come through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Well, it doesn't mean uh, literally how much money you have or that if you're, because if that was true, then all the poor people all over the world would just be extraordinarily enlightened. You know, they'd just be <laughs> just glowing in the dark with rapture. And uh, It's symbolic of a different kind of riches. The richest there, I, I sense, has to do with attachment. The tendency of the mind to accumulate, not necessarily literal possessions, but even thin, more subtle ones like ideas. So what does the Buddha do? He tells them about this wonderful, they, they wanted some kind of toys. It was sort of a, I've forgotten now. Does anyone remember? Anyone read the Lotus Sutra? Cart, yeah. So he's got these carts for them. And they hear this, you know, the carts that Daddy promised us. And they come running out to safety. And one interpretation of that is that the teaching really is a vehicle. That is, we... Uh, we don't respond directly. We seem to need all kinds of things to lure us out. So all kinds of things, the teaching, practices, so many of the things we're doing, perhaps the Buddha in back of me, anything that will help you know, to, to wake us up. Okay, so what this is also saying is that everything is on fire. Uh, the, the, a world... largely influenced by ignorance, by greed and hatred, is a world that's aflame. Okay. Let's back off from that now. Well, before I do, just to, to give you a feeling, for it, to stay in this, with these metaphors, probably most or all of you have heard of nirvana, or nibbana, and sometimes you see it in the Pali language which is the ultimate uh, liberation in this lineage, this tradition, this approach. Say ultimate uh, significance, ultimate freedom. But what nirvana means is uh, it comes from when coals uh, go out, hot coals go out, so that, uh, as I understand it, uh, Indians will talk about uh, how, you know, the meal, the fire for meal having nirvanaed. It's not such a special word. It's just an ordinary word about fires going out. And so, again, we have that same image. Uh, nirvana is cool. Now, some people find that a little disappointing because you want... Uh, this path spends a lot of time working on suffering and ignorance and impermanence and all that. Rather than having extraordinary images about what the final goal is, you know, Nirvana, uh, heaven. It's a negative path. It's sometimes called the via negativa. It's instead of talking about God and let's say the qualities of that, is, that's one way to do it. What we do is we let go, let go, let go. In other words, everything is other than nirvana. Everything that we point to, it. that's not it. If we're in Hinduism, they do it too. They talk about uh, neti neti. Not this, not that. This is not God. This is not God. This is not God. In other words, all of the things that we're infatuated with, none of it is. And it's in the emptying out, in the letting go, that we come to fullness. Now, as Corrado pointed out, we don't really believe that letting go leads to anything that's so great. We're kind of hedging our bets. We hold on to a lot and we kind of edge a little bit here. Oh, I'll let go of this. And it's usually something that we're bored with already. <laughs> Or it's been so snatched away from us that we don't have any choice. Yeah, I think I'm going to let go of my, uh, of my Erector set and Lionel trains and my dolly. Yeah, but you're 40 years old. You know. Yeah, I have no interest in them at all. I'm just not attached. I'm going to let go of it. Yeah, it would be nice if you could say that when you were four. When you remember when you were sobbing because you couldn't find your dolly and you thought the world was coming to an end? If you could have had wisdom then. That's what we're talking about. I remember when I came out of the army, my mother, bless her heart, saved all my shoes. I had all these, uh, uh, lots of sneakers. I was a basketball, uh, I had a basketball fetish. And I had, in those days, different kinds of white sneakers with different kinds of laces, colored laces. 
imitating different star basketball players. Um, and white bucks and loafers without a coin in it and, and white bucks that were intentionally dirtied and a whole different kinds of... And, they, and my mother saved them for me, but I was away in the army for a few years. And when I came back, of course, I was beyond all that. And I looked at them and they were totally dead. I mean, I didn't want to wear any of it. And, and I remembered each one when I got it, you know, seeing it in the store, the excitement of it, shining there in the window, getting the money, getting your parent to go with you, finally getting those shoes, trying them on, and getting a sense of yourself strutting around in these new <laughs> shoes, walking out into the street, imagining what people, these colossal things people are thinking about you. <laughs> but they were, too, they were more concerned with, what, with their shoes, you know, with their, what, what you were thinking about their shoes. So I let go of all those shoes. It was no problem. Yeah. Uh, only to pick up, a, you know, new ones. Uh, Birkenstocks or whatever. Whatever is next. The ones, the ones that the pr- I've been eyeing up now as prickly ones, you know, that I see some people wear that it's supposed to be good for circulation. It's probably the next place that I catch fire. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, let me give you a, an, an example now. Let's drop down to uh, very homely, ordinary kinds of suffering or fires that break out. And also the ordinary, very small liberations that are possible. I'm not sure we'll have time to uh, do a whole lot of this tonight, but let's at least get it started. Let me give you a few examples, very ordinary examples, of ways in which uh, the fire breaks out. These actually, uh, these are actual occurrences in in lives of people who I know. Um, I have this clinical file now in my mind, all these different ways in which we drive ourselves crazy that I hope are good for teaching. Um, okay, there was recently at, the, at the, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, it was a very hot night. And if you can imagine it, we, well, um, we had a fan right about, right in front of me and off to the left. It was very humid and very hot. And so people came in and were sitting just as you were, a smaller room than this. So some people were sitting uh, and could get the direct uh, help from the fan and were cooled by it. And some people not as much. And the first few rows were empty. Um, and one person in particular sitting about over there was uh, getting the full blast of the fan and had a, was real, this all was reported that to me afterwards, that's how I can say this, was, had a big smile, was just really content, meditating away. <laughs> And, you know, some people were more uh, further away from the fan, beads of sweat. I didn't get anything. I was up here. And someone came in late, about 10 or 15 minutes late, maybe more. And where do they go? But they sit right in the front row, directly in front of the fan. And so this person who was in paradise, having a very cooling feelings on the body and having a very nice, cool mind and uh, meditating up the storm, Suddenly, it's taken away, and she's sweating it out like the rest of us. Okay. Now, according to what, as we recreated this, and you'll see it becomes an incredible melodrama, we, it took us two hours to unravel the whole thing. Um, she became furious, and she caught fire. She was just as totally aflame. It was very hot, but that, it became even hotter, because how could he get in the way of, in effect, her fan. You know, this is my cool breeze. And what is he doing? And she spent almost the entire sitting. So the first, her body was suffering. That is, there was the body caught fire because it was hot, then it was cool, and then it was hot again. So the physical body was suffering to some degree. But then the mind caught, and of course that's, that's where the real suffering is. The mind became attached to a particular condition that it had. It had coolness. 
and this person gets in, fr- in front of her and there's no more coolness. And she said she spent the entire meditation just going crazy about having had the coolness and having lost it and who does he think he is and incredible uh, fantasies of what she should do to him and get up and <laughs> tell him, you know. Uh, but of course, being a good yogi, she just sat there still, you know, just not moving and suffering all the way until towards the very end. Suddenly she caught on to herself and what she realized, what am I doing? I've either got to go up there and drag this guy away from me, you know, or sit up close myself. But of course, we don't want to do that because we don't want to disturb the other meditators. So she was trapped by the etiquette as well. And she wasn't doing any of that. And she had, the fan was gone. That was a fact. And it took her almost the entire sitting to get comfortable with the truth that she now had a different condition. And that condition was, wasn't cool. And as soon as she saw that, or as the awareness came to the fire sort of on flame, and it fell away, and there was this tremendous relief. Now, she was still physically hot, because anyone who didn't have the fan was. But her body was hot, but her mind was not on fire anymore. Her mind, and she experienced uh, tremendous relief and release. Please remember that, the symmetry of it. First, grabbing on, getting terribly burned, letting go, and feeling tremendous release. Okay, it doesn't end here. Then it turns out that this person who, who, uh, who came, uh, and I got his story later in pieces, it turns out that he felt tremendously heroic. His car broke down, this and that. And he went through tremendous effort to get to the class and to be there. He was so happy and proud of himself. So he felt he's done a wonderful thing by getting to the meditation class. And he didn't know what he was doing. He just plopped himself down in the front row. He really didn't. He wasn't trying to, to obscure anyone. He just wasn't sensitive to what the consequences were. And he was having a wonderful meditation right in front of the fan until he heard her story. And when she told her story after we stopped sitting, then he felt like an ogre. And then he, then he caught fire. <laughs> and he caught fire and went through all this stuff of how could I have been so insensitive? And, how could and so the mind uh, then was like a four-alarm fire. And, and, he had, and he lost his cool to hers. In the meantime, I think I was suffering more than anyone else and also laughing more than anyone else. But, um, there's more, but I think that'll be enough. I mean, it, well, someone else was suffering because they saw that, um, that I hadn't done the best, I hadn't made the most use of the fan, as I had just put it out there. And what their theory was that if the fan would just put in, could suck the air out of one of the windows, then we would all be much cooler. And so she spent the entire hour suffering about, well, doesn't Larry know that? I mean, he should know that. You know, uh, I think I'll go, just go up and change you. I should mention this. No, I better not. You know, just on and on and on. Uh, and then saying, oh, this is the way I always am. I have good ideas, but I, I, I don't intervene. I don't put them into action. <laughs> you know. So before the evening it was over, I mean, we really learned about the sermon, you know, because everyone was on fire and it was a hot night to boot. Okay. An- another one from this little meditation center that we have in Cambridge. Uh, in this one, I get burned. Actually, everyone got burned. There were no survivors in this one. Very early in the history of the center, and I don't know how, if some of you are, are like this, but maybe some of you, don't you like Vipassana because it's kind of simple and not much ritual or ceremony, no incense and big robes and kind of informal. We do want you to come to sittings on time and at least most of you to sit up straight. Some of you are disobedient, but you know, that's your problem. Okay. But by and large, it's not Japanese style. We don't, you know, make you bow a lot and have wear these big robes with the sleeves that get into the soup. And, you know, uh, and we, we talk in English mostly. Karate, if you kusala and akusala. But, you know, but by and large, it's ordinary language that we use. And we're just ordinary Joes in these, you know, nice sporty outfits and... Uh, so it's a nice, simple American practice. Okay. And that's part of why we like it. Maybe some of you fit that. I mean, it, it fits some people. Okay. 
But early on at the center, uh, what I tried, I put a stick of incense. I happened to like the incense. And so one night we were having a sitting and I put a stick of uh, incense in the incense urn on the altar. And this is what came out of that. One person comes in, sits down, gets all ready to meditate. Uh, someone who would have fit the description that I just mentioned. And suddenly what happens? But here's this aroma of incense. <laughs> it strikes her nostrils. She's allergic to it, so that's one source of burning. The nostrils break out into flame right away. But then it turns out she's an ex-Catholic. And so then her, whole, her mind just, just completely on fire, agonizing fire. I thought this was a regular place, a simple place where you could just come and practice. And now they're starting with the incense. And next we'll be having robes and chanting and bowing. And, and she was just tormented. She walked out in the middle of the sitting, sent me an angry note. Wanted to really talk about what is what kind of a, this is this going to be a vipassana center or isn't it? And it was it was really very hard for her. Okay, another person who had been to spent many years in India and loves a lot of this certain kinds of ceremony and ritual smelled the incense and was just in a state of incredible ecstasy. In other words, it hit her nostrils and just pure joy. And then memories of the ashram, you know, in India and all the great yogis and this kind of thing. And she was just waves of bliss, tears coming down her face about, about the incense. Okay. So she was now, she didn't know that she was on fire. The first person was obvious because that was an obvious fire. When we have these cravings for nice things, it's not so obvious that we're on fire because unfortunately what happens is they don't last. And if we're not uh, equipped to understand that or to move with that, when it happens, when it leaves, then we, can't, we really feel what it is we've, been, we've set ourselves up for. Okay, so I spoke to this person who didn't like it and then it turned out that there were others who really felt, no incense, please. Okay, fine, no incense. So then... Uh, this person who loved the incense who was so happy with it, then she caught fire because now the incense which made her happy was taken away. So what can you do? And that made me unhappy because I saw that no matter what I did, everyone was going to catch on fire here. <laughs> so uh, we don't have incense except once in a while when no one's around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 Um, What I'd like to suggest is, um, and I think we'll, we'll have to continue this, uh, but perhaps this can be helpful. Um, okay, let me leave you with this learning, learning model, uh, which I think the, the, the core of it comes out of this sutra and some of the teaching. We've all heard a great deal about letting go. It's very important. We know that it's supposedly lots of good things happen. The more you let go, the more you get. And a little bit of let go, a little bit of happiness. Middle-sized let go, middle-sized happiness. Big let go, huge happiness. Roughly, that's what is being said. And so, of course, we like that. And we hear attachment's no good. And you heard that tonight a lot, that it's, you, know, you catch fire when it happens. And so we want letting go. We don't want attachment. And so a lot of things go on in the name of non-attachment or letting go that really aren't. They're suppression or forcing away or uh, saying that we're, we've let something go that we're really not even interested in and so forth. Practically speaking, it seems for all of us what could be very, very helpful. And of course, the, teaching are, the teachings are saying this is step number one, we don't have to be in such a hurry to let go. The first thing is to know that we're attached. Do we even know that we're attached? Do we even know what attachment is? Not merely theoretically. So that what is being suggested in those moments, and I would suggest that for the next few days, just in your ordinary life here at the center, not even limited to the sitting by any means, just wherever you go, be sensitive to the very small ways in which we get attached as we grasp onto something and don't be in a hurry to let go of it or see it as bad, but actually become an expert on attachment. When we hold on to something, when we want something to be a certain way, what happens to us? What, is that, what are the consequences? And see if there is some resemblance to putting your hand in fire and getting burned. 
little things. For example, you walk into the, into the dining room and you've been here now for how long? Four or five days. It's your place, right? And there's someone sitting in your chair in the dining room eating their meal, but in your chair. Does that happen to anyone yet? It, well, maybe you need to be here longer. I don't know. But people stake out. This is, it's happened to you? Yeah. That's my seat. And finally, a lot, very often you get your seat because everyone is staking out their own space. But now and then you walk in and somebody's sitting. Who's sitting? Who's in my bed? <laughs> okay. Um, or, and these are things that have come up in interviews or in discussion groups over the years. People doing walking, right out here in the walking meditation. And someone else in the next lane is just... A one millionth of one inch too close to them. One, you know, just they're slightly too close to them and they feel like, what are they doing in my lane? <laughs> this is my path. I got here first and I want, you know, if I can't meditate unless they, you know, pull over to the side. No. Okay. Little, just small potatoes. I mean, we're not looking for, you know, Someone left me and or I lost my job or anything like that. Just really ordinary stuff. Small suffering, small attachments. If there is, see if it is suffering. Maybe it's great to be attached. And all this is just propaganda. <laughs> Through your own direct inquiry, see if you can find out a lot about it. Become an expert on attachment. Don't be in a hurry for what supposedly comes after it. Now, if you do that and if perchance... Some, a little bit of letting go happens or it, just, it falls away and for a moment you have just a free existence without either clinging or pushing away. You just are with food or with anything. You're able to be non-attached. You're able to be with it and your relationship to it is not poisoned by either grabbing onto it, trying to hold it, or trying to annihilate it or to get away from it. And you experience, let's say, a moment of letting go and freedom, or even longer. Just as that, the, the person who uh, went through that whole cycle of experiencing uh, joy in being having the fan, the br- cool breeze, and getting attached to that, holding on to it, and then when it was taken away, suffering tremendously. And then seeing that, later on in that sitting, as soon as the awareness accompanied the attachment, the attachment loses its potency, at least it did then. It fell away and she felt this great relief that lasted maybe 30 seconds or a minute. She was no longer wanting things to be other than the way they were and she felt whole again. She felt fine again. So then, what? You, now we've come full circle. That is, not only are you you're seeing the price that we pay, if there is one, the consequences for attachment, the mind begins to learn that. Oh, I see what happens. When I grasp onto this, ouch! when I try to hold it, and it says, sorry, it's time for me to leave, and I don't want it to, ouch. But then when I honor the lawfulness of the universe, and I let the process work, when I allow things to follow their course, oh, it's wonderful, I feel a relief from the holding on. Then the mind gets educated. See, there's a symmetry to it. It starts to get it. I do this, I get burned. I let go, I feel okay. If if it can only put those together more and more, then it becomes the teachings become naturally convincing from your experience, not on the and then of course more faith. Since we're twins, I've been hearing, except that one of us has an Italian accent. (laughs) I'm trying to link up with everything that Corrado said. But then the faith grows. The faith gives us more energy to investigate, and so forth. And so. uh, in a sense, it's the learning this of, that has the real power. When you begin to really learn about yourself firsthand. So what I would suggest is over the next day or two, in addition to everything that we're doing here, just keep a little ha- you know, half of your mind alert to notice small ways in which you get caught and what that feels like. And if there's any letting go, what that feels like. And then we'll uh, continue this uh, probably Saturday, Saturday night. Just a moment silence if you want to say.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.